Hello and welcome to episode number 21 of Diary of a Security Consultant, the show where we talk all things security consultancy. A little bit different this week. Uh, this show is going to be a recording of a webinar that we're doing today, uh, which is entitled Conflict Management Concepts for Security Professionals. So it's a two-hour webinar, so quite long. Uh, it's going to go on the podcasts and the YouTube channel. As you will know if you're watching it on the podcast or YouTube channel, I suppose. Uh, it's going to be about the basic concepts of conflict management that, that security professionals need to understand. In, in my experience of conflict management with security professionals is we focus in on one niche part of conflict management, which is high-end aggressive customers, when in reality, the vast majority of conflicts uh, don't start off that way. They escalate to that from something else, and that's going to be the common theme understanding some of the basic content concepts and then some of the um, interesting suppose, strategies and tips that I've used over the years uh, to help me manage conflict. So hopefully you guys get something out of it. I'll come back on at the end when everybody's gone um, and we can probably do a quick wrap up. But for now, I'll leave you with the, uh, the webinar. Thanks very much, guys. Currently, it's currently 35 and still people joining. Uh, so that's brilliant, you know. When I put it up, I thought, Jesus, like the last couple, we might have got 50 and maybe get 20 will show up. But to get 142, I was amazed. I thought somebody was at the Hacking Me website or something. Um, but uh, thanks very much, everyone, for taking the, the time. You know, it's two hours on a Monday evening. It's not easy to give up. And most of you are giving up your own time. Like, it's not as if you don't want a training course, work is pain. I do appreciate it. Uh, so I'm just going to stick you all on mute at the start. But anyone that wants to come in and ask questions, just fire away as you want. You can either do it in the chat, I'm going to keep an eye there, or you can do it in the, just unmute yourself and ask the question uh, if you want to do that. Um, <clears throat> so I suppose what, why I decided to do this subject, the last one that we did uh, was on reasonable force, and some of you were there on that one, and I got some pretty good feedback. And I'd meant to do one kind of every, uh, every month or so, and then it all kind of kicked off. And people have been asking me, and there's some people on this have asked me to do a couple more, so uh, I was looking around and then somebody's probably seen last week we, we, with Mike and ICSE there, we won uh, an award for the National Training Award for a conflict management program. And then I thought about, well, maybe it's something for the security industry because what I often find with the security industry is that even though we tend to be really, really good at managing front-end conflict, face-to-face -face conflict with people, one, everybody does it in a different way and does it in their own way and stuff like that. But we tend to concentrate on that little niche of conflict, which is the high-end aggressive conflict that we find ourselves in, which is probably only less than 5% of the actual difficult situations we find ourselves in. And there's not a whole lot of emphasis put on the other types of conflicts, you know, that we, that we deal with. And oftentimes it's, in my experience of working with courts and insurers and stuff like that, it's often the case in, in my experience that poorly managed low-end conflicts and intrapersonal conflict is often what results in us having to deal with the high-end uh, conflict situations. So I thought maybe a little bit about the concepts of how personality works and, and how the psychology of conflict a little bit. Um, like I said, I've done a fair bit of study on that sort of stuff over the years in terms of academic study, and then obviously practical application from the doors and retail and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and... That's why I found how do you deal with Devon's protesters? Come on, Pat. <laughs> so, in, you'd be nice to them, Pat. That's how you deal with them. <laughs> so, in terms of um, what we're going to talk about, I'm not going to get too much into the weeds with stuff because I know people have their own ways of dealing. I'm going to talk a bit about tips and strategies and stuff that I found that used 
Um, if there was academics on it, they'd probably more to me for some of the things that I say, but I've done a lot of academic research and I found that, you know, a lot of the times with the academic stuff, it's written by people who've never actually been in an argument. You know, it's fantastic doing an academic study in a very, very controlled environment uh, where we have control over the environment, the circumstance and the time. It's a bit more challenging when we're operating in what we call bounded rationality. So we'll talk a little bit about today about that concept of bounded rationality and how it affects human beings. And I suppose about uh, some of the concepts around how we're affected by conflict, which I think is very much overlooked in the security industry, you know, that we're just expected to get on with things when we're involved in a conflict instance. But the reality is that conflict has an impact on every single one of us. Every time you're in an argument or a row, it has an impact on you. And your, your brain, your limbic system learns from that. And it distributes that again in the next conflict that you're involved in, you know. So we're all picking up habits, good and bad, in conflict uh, all the time. And I often think that we often hammer ourselves for the bad. When in reality, probably most of us on this training course have a 99.5% success rate with conflict. But I'm sure we all remember the times where we didn't manage it particularly well. You know, and they're the ones that sit in the back of our head and they give us what I refer to as conflict scarce. You know, that sit with us the next time we have to deal with a similar situation or a similar personality or a similar stereotype. And we do a lot of stuff in conflict that if we were to say it out loud would probably be uh, very much frowned upon, I suppose, in modern society. We stereotype people, we label people, we dehumanize people. We risk assess people based on how they dress, how they look, what uh, background they come from. And they in modern society are often seen as negative things. But on the flip side of that, they've kept us alive and our ancestors alive and our forefathers alive for generations and generations and generations. The fact that we are here today tells us that risk assessment and stereotyping in conflict works. You know, kept your grandparents alive, kept your great grandparents alive, going right back to caveman stuff, you know. Now we've had to moderate it. And I think we've got probably we've got a couple of ladies, definitely one or two ladies on here, but I think we're predominantly men. And um, we'll talk a little bit, maybe if we get time later on, about the gender difference in conflict. There's a huge gender difference in conflict. Uh, a lot of the research now is pointing to the fact that um, women are genetically better set up for modern day social conflict than men are. Women are genetically better, better set up because of the adrenal path and how cortisol is released through the system for dealing with low level, high consistency arguments that society now demands that we deal with. Whereas men are still predominantly hardwired for adrenal response, fight or flight in conflict. We are much better equipped for high-level, short outbursts of conflict. And that's still what we're probably designed for. Fight or flight. But HR tends to frown upon both of those now. You know, how did you deal with that angry person? Killed him. But he's no longer angry. You know, uh, or ran away from us. So the security industry forces us into interaction that we're probably not genetically set up for. As well as probably generations into the future will be. You know, most, a lot of you guys would have come from door backgrounds. You know, I still remember standing on the door the first time somebody threatened me with Facebook. You know, put this guy out and he turns and he swings and he does the posturing, chest out, chin out, bearing the teeth. And you're thinking, here we go. I'm going to break your legs. I'm going to break your arms. I'm going to stab you. And he turns around and he says, I'm going to put you all over Facebook. I remember looking at him kind of going, I don't really know how to take that. <laughs> you know, how do you manage something like that? Like, you know, I'm going to put you over Facebook. At the time, I didn't care. Didn't even have a Facebook. You know, but now that's a big issue for people. You know, it's a huge issue for young people entering the industry. You know, 
to have themselves put out there and things like that on social media. So I'm going to share some slides. I know it's not going to come across in the podcast, but I'm going to talk through them <clears throat> uh, quite a bit, I suppose. At the end, sorry, I meant to share. At the end, I'm keeping a list of who's signing in and how they're signing in and stuff like that. Everybody's going to get a cert for this. I'm going to send on everybody. Um, uh, that's the cert that everyone gets, as always, when we do these things. So I'm going to send all them on by email. You'll get a copy of the slides and you'll get the recording of the, of the show itself. So if anyone wants to use it for uh, CPD or anything like that, you can feel free to, to use it first. Uh, if I mention stuff as I'm going, other resources or other research that you're interested in, just drop me an email or a message in the chat and I'll make sure I get it onto you uh, as, I'm, as I'm going through. But I want to talk a little, I suppose, about what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, so for the next kind of hour and a bit, and I want to leave about 10 minutes at the end for, for Q&A and stuff like that, I'm going to talk about different types of conflicts because we often associate just one and that's interpersonal conflict, but there are many other types of conflict. Uh, how your personality affects conflicts and the different types of personality you come across. A little bit about the psychology of conflict, some strategies, and then a little bit on stress and resilience and stuff like that. So I suppose to start off with a little bit on, and like I said, feel free to drop any comments or, or disagreements, whatever you might have into the chat as we're, as we're going. Many people, when we talk about conflict associated with this one here, interpersonal conflict, two people having an argument. And that's probably the most common manifestation of conflict that we come across. It's me and another party through miscommunication, a miscommunication that affects where it seems that somebody else's values or beliefs are threatened, we end up in a conflict situation. Um, my experience of this is that oftentimes this is not a root cause. It's often a manifestation. It's often how conflict shows up in our workplace, but it's often not the cause of the conflict, the root cause of the conflict. In my experience, root cause conflict often sits either here in intrapersonal conflict, that's intrapersonal conflict, and here in intergroup conflict. So intrapersonal conflict is the conflict that sits within a person's head, how we deal with stress and conflict in our heads. And in my experience, that's often the most common root cause of conflict in the security industry. People operating under stress, making poor decisions and manifesting their conflicts on, on other people. You know? So people who mishandle conflict in here, and I'm sure we all have that, I suppose, friend or friends in there like that. You can have an argument with them today and 15 minutes later, it's forgotten about. They get over it very, very quickly. And I'm sure we all know people that you can have a fallen out with it now and they hold on to it and they get bitter and twisted and they let it eat it up and they take it out on you for weeks or even months uh, following that, you know? And it's just poorly managed conflict in here. In my experience of, of workplaces in the security industry, that is probably the most common cause of employment issues of people getting in trouble with their bosses or their managers is what's called what I call secondary conflict, which is where they're in a high stress or a high adrenaline conflict the other person uh, burns off all of their adrenaline uh, by shouting, roaring, and venting across the board. And they leave. And you had that professional consequence. You stood there and you controlled your emotion and you controlled your adrenaline. And that person burned all theirs off and then they storm off. And you're left there full of adrenaline. And immediately afterwards, or very soon afterwards, the next conflict situation arises. And we lash out at a person who possibly doesn't deserve it. And it had nothing to do with anything that person did wrong. We just found an easy target. We talk about in psychology, the availability bias. The brain will deload its stress, but it's very selective about how it deloads its stress. It will deload its stress on what it perceives to be the nearest available easy target. 
And when we're at work, the big angry person is often a challenging target to deload stress on. There's a consequence to deloading. Your colleague, when you snap at them a couple of minutes later, or a customer who you snap at a couple of minutes later, is often a much easier target. Or when you go home and have an argument with your wife or your husband or your kids, because they're a much easier target. There's no consequence to doing that. And we'll talk a lot about consequence later on. I think it's a huge thing. But I think interpersonal conflict, residual anger, Stephen put it very well there, built up in people's heads and lashed out at the nearest available target often manifests itself in third party conflict. Another one that I think is, is very much overlooked is the one on the far side of my screen over here, which is intergroup conflict, which is conflict that emerges among tight knit groups and ends up being manifest on the third party. So in uh, a very male dominated uh, security industry, you know, where we would still have, I suppose, 90 odd percent male dominated industry, far too much testosterone and ego floating around in small tight knit groups where people are still trying to prove alpha male status. And that intergroup tension, intergroup conflict that can emerge of trying to one up each other and the war stories and all the stuff that goes along that can often end up with people taking out an interpersonal conflict on a third party that probably didn't deserve it. Showing off in front of other people. Clash of personalities within a group when it's taken out on somebody else. I don't know if you guys agree. If you disagree, feel free to say, but I think that's very, that's very commonly. You know, somebody feeling, particularly newer people, talk about Dunning-Kruger and different blog articles there, but new people trying to prove themselves within an industry to their group of peers or feeling like they have to prove themselves and going above and beyond what would be expected of them and taking that out on other people then. You know, uh, very, very challenging to manage as a manager or something like that. How do you manage that tension within the group of, of alpha males? And then you have inter-organizational clashes of personality. Anybody who works as a service provider will know that. You know, where you have a security officer, retail security is a very good example, a contracted retail security officer contracted to an employer who pays his or her salary. But dealing with the employer's client who has a conflicting set of priorities to the employer and having demands made on by both that often conflict and that often results then in manifest issues with interpersonal conflict, third party customers and stuff like that. You know, where there's mixed messages and poor communication coming through. So I think all of these three, intrapersonal, intergroup, interorganizational, are much more commonly a root cause of conflict than this interpersonal one. But the interpersonal one is the one we all know. It's the one that gets marched out there, you know, because that's the one where it's shown. That tends to be the easy target for people. And probably... I don't know would you agree with this, but in my experience, the vast majority of people who we will deal with in a conflict situation are not bad people. You know, they're good people having a bad day. Their family would probably wouldn't consider themselves a bad pe than bad people. Their friends wouldn't consider themselves bad people. They would probably consider you a bad person. Anybody who's looked into criminology has probably come across this tenet before. They talk about one of the central tenets of criminology being, you know, that there's about 10% of society at the top whose morals, ethics, and values would never allow them to break the law or treat other people badly. There's about 10% at the bottom whose morals, ethics, and values demands that they break the law or treat other people badly. And we're never going to change that. They're not the people for whom we're seeking behavioral change. They're the people for the only thing that works is deterrence, you know, hard access and deterrence. And then in the middle sits 80% of society who would like to think themselves good upstanding citizens. But if the benefit 
or the reward for breaking the law or treating other people badly outweighs the risk or the consequence of doing so, they'll take a chance on it. And most people will probably say, no, no, that's not me. I'm definitely in that top 10%. Morals and ethics would never allow me to break the law, treat other people badly. Until you ask people how many people have ever had a late point in a bar or gone above the speed limit. And they go, ah, that doesn't make a criminal. You know? Because people can rationalize any behavior as long as there's a benefit to them. You know? They can rationalize any sense of behavior. We've all seen it with criminals. You know, there's lots of people here from retail security backgrounds, how they can rationalize coming in and stealing something as not being a crime until they're caught. You know, when the speeding becomes speeding, when the flashing blue lights appear behind you in, a, in the car, prior to that, you were just in a hurry. You know, but our brain can rationalize any sort of positive behavior as long as there's a benefit to us to doing so. You know, and as long as the benefit is perceived to be outweighed by the risk, people will take a chance. And as long as there's no consequence to an action, the action will can continue. And there's that word again, consequence. We're going to talk about that a lot later on. Uh, as long as there's no consequence to an action, the action will continue because it becomes a learned success habit. And we'll talk about that in personality now in a second. Uh, <clears throat> so I would often say, you know, just because a person chooses to treat you badly doesn't make them a bad person. But we automatically go on that assumption because it's easy for the brain to think black and white. It's easy for the brain to think good or bad. If I'm the good person, then this person automatically must be a bad person. Therefore, I'm entitled to treat them so. You know, and that's a very easy mindset to, to slip into when we talk about conflict. So I wanna, I wanna talk about, uh, yeah, you're right, Pat, it's, it's very personal. They don't know you well enough to dislike you. You know, the other person doesn't know you well enough to dislike you. In fact, in my case, if they knew me better, they'd probably like me less. But, you know, they don't know me well enough to dislike me. They dislike what I represent. I represent a problem to them. And that's what they dislike. And as long as the problem remains, the dislike will, will remain, you know. Um, <clears throat> and people would say the most, the most horrible of stuff, I suppose. In terms of, of personality, you're supposing, in conflict, I often talk about... Um, how important people's personality is in conflict. And we often talk about the different conflict management styles that they talk about in, in, uh, in uh, psychology. So we have the self-appreciating styles on one side and we have the other appreciating styles on the other side. And in the middle, we have the much more collaborative integrating styles. And we'll talk a little bit about each one, I suppose. On the self-appreciating side, we'll often have the dominant personality type. The dominant personality type is a person who has to win every single argument. And oftentimes, with really strong dominant personality types, it's not enough for them to win the argument. In order for them to feel truly happy about having won the argument, they have to make the other person feel bad about having lost the argument. So they can be quite demeaning to people. You know, they're sometimes referred to in psychology as HCPs, high conflict personalities. They will go out of their way. Uh, sometimes referred to also in, in, in Rory Miller's books, he refers to them as, as resource predators. They use conflict as a resource you know, to gain resource, sometimes referred to as the bullying mindset and other research. And people would say, why would somebody choose to engage in a behavior like that, knowing that it makes another person feel bad? And the reality goes back to what we said there a minute ago, because it works. In my experience, the vast majority of society out there does not deal well with aggressive conflict. When somebody gets in their face, postures, shouts, roars, and screams, and dominates an argument, they back down and give them what they want. So for the dominant personality type, 
It's a success habit. When I shout, roar, and scream, I get what I want. And our, like we said earlier on, our brain learns from success habits. So as long as it continues to be successful, we'll continue to do it. The problem for this person arises when they come across an individual who's not willing to be intimidated. They generally don't have a plan B, a logical plan B. And as some of you guys will know who've dealt with high-risk conflict before, it usually results in one or two things. They absolutely melt and all their barriers break down and they go backwards and regressive and sometimes burst into tears. I love when that happens. Um, or they go into self-sabotage mode. They throw all the toys out of the pram and would sometimes even self-sabotage. You know, the guy who puts his finger through, a, his fist through a glass pane or begins to headbutt the door. You know, of absolutely no benefit to him but it's getting out that rage on somebody who he knows. His mind is selecting the easy target and he's looking at you going, I'm not the easy target. The door's a much easier target or the window's a much easier target for me to show my dominance. You know? On the same side as that, but further down that equation, we have the competitive type, the competitive conflict management style. These can be difficult to deal with. They can be much more difficult to work with. Hopefully no one's ever come across to this. Um, he's not on here, so we can still talk about. I'm not going to mention his name, though. You all know who we're talking about before this starts, right? <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so the competitive one is a person who doesn't necessarily care about winning or losing an argument. The benefit to them is in starting an argument, causing an argument. If you're from the door security background, uh, that's the guy who has an idea. He just doesn't want to show it to you. You know, uh, it's the professional protester. It's the, the person who will go out of the way to antagonize and ask difficult questions. And why I said it can be difficult to work with is because when you get a competitor within a security team, they're a person who loves just storing the pot. And they tend to be absolutely fantastic at starting arguments, but they don't tend to stay around for the end. The benefit to them is in causing the arguments. So they roll out the hand grenade, kaboom, and walk away smiling. You know? That's the win for them, is the cause of the, of the argument. They'll walk away now happy that they've caused that um, argument. And that's the benefit to them. Problem is, somebody obviously has to be there to finish up the, finish up the argument, you know, while they're walking off smiling or bent over behind the, the door, buckled over laughing at you, uh, having to deal with this. On the opposite side, uh, there's a lot of these have made it through and into the security industry over the years, I suppose, without realizing what it is that they're getting into. Uh, it's the avoiding personality type. That's the person who will go out of their way to avoid having to deal with conflict. You know, they let it sit and they avoid it and they don't deal with things and it gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually what happens, it festers and it gets worse. And eventually somebody has to go and deal with that situation. And it's often much, much worse at that point because it's gone to high risk conflict by the time we actually go and, go and deal with it. I always remember one night walking in, in nightclubs uh, walking down onto a dance floor, this nightclub, and there's a doorman there, and he's from a martial arts background as well. And he, you know, he as I walked over, he nudges me. I says, "Everything okay?" He says, "Yeah." See the two guys over here. I says, "Yeah." They're going to kick off now, any minute. And I said, "Right." So why are we standing here? And he said, uh, "Well, we're, we're waiting for them to kick off." And I said, "Why?" And I said, so we can stop them. And I said, "So why don't we just walk over and stop them?" Like you know, but he was avoiding having to deal with till, till obviously till help camp. But he wanted to show off his martial arts skills, which was his strong point. So he avoided going over and dealers in a way that he was weak, which is communication skills, to wait for it to escalate into something that he was comfortable dealing with, which is violence. You know, 
the others often uh, uh, also come up as well, the avoiding type who will you know, abandon you as soon as the fourth sign of conflict uh, emerges. That freaky sound of a fire exit door being locked behind you as you're left outside, you know? Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> uh, and then down the bottom, the people that don't tend to last all that much must be very stressful. I sometimes call this the victim mindset, is the obliging type. That's a person who'll stand there and let other people shout, roar, and scream at them all, all the time in the ward because it makes the other person feel better, you know? I think it must be a very, very stressful mindset to end up in that mindset where people are just constantly shouting at you and you're not doing anything, anything about it. I think the successful people in the security industry come into the center and they end up even being all, all the time being one of the compromising styles, either the integrator or the compromiser, you know, a person who knows when to win and knows when to lose, knows when something's worth arguing over and when something's not worth arguing over. And knowing that, look, sometimes it's just battles you're not going to win. There's no point. You know, and the only person who suffers by engaging in that argument is you. And then down the bottom is that rare human being, the collaborator, who is the type of person who's willing to ask for the help of others to solve their problems. <laughs> Imagine having to ask for help. <laughs> uh, if I go back to, um, if you've ever come across, anyone who hasn't come across, I highly recommend his book, Rory Miller, uh, in his, uh, his book, Facing Violence, is this theory that, um, the human brain will leave an argument in one of three ways. If it wins or perceives it wins, even a slight little perception of a win, if it's given an easy way to lose, or if the benefit of staying outweighs the risk, or is outweighed by the, by the risk, you know? We will only leave in one of those three ways when we're comfortable doing it. And one of the theories he comes across is that the brain doesn't like losing arguments, but one thing it hates more than losing an argument is drawing an argument or having to ask for help with an argument, because that feels like more of a failure. When we lose an argument, we can often rationalize it and come up with an excuse, you know? But when we have to ask for help, it's that perception of weakness, but not just weakness, it's weakness that's on view to everybody else, you know? And we really, really struggle with that uh, sometimes, especially in that alpha male society, like we said, you know? Uh, <clears throat> so in, in terms of conflict, I suppose it's about Conflict is never about changing your personality. We all have personalities. Everybody here deals with conflict differently and everyone in the world deals with conflict. There's no wrong way of dealing with conflict. I suppose it's recognizing what you are, self-awareness, recognizing what you are and what you're good at and either working on it or risk assessing against it. If you are not good, if you're an obliging type and you're not good with assertive conflict, don't apply for jobs that require you to deal with assertive conflict until you get good at it, you know? And the same thing applies. If you're really good at assertive conflict, you know, working in a nursing home is probably not for you, you know, because uh, <clears throat> you have to get quite good at obliging conflict and, 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 and stuff like that. You know, there's no wrong way of dealing with conflict. It's what your personality is suited to. And I suppose as an industry, I think at interview and recruitment stage, we have to get better at risk assessing personalities for roles, you know, because I've seen people who could have been very, very good in the industry over a long period of time dropped in at the deep end on a role that they clearly weren't, hadn't got the personality for right now and ending up leaving the industry because of that, because they end up with conflict scarce. You know? and I don't know if you've ever come across that phrase before, conflict scarce, uh, but it's a very, very real thing that, that I see quite a lot of. You know? um, conflict scarce is your, your, your brain's memory for conflict. So every time we engage in a conflict, we learn something from it. But where we feel we do badly in a particular conflict situation, that leaves a scar. And our brain risks, risk assesses against that scar for future conflict. 
So it tries to make us avoid similar types of conflict in the future. You know, it's like if you've ever lost control of a car and you go to get behind the wheel again. You know, and your brain gives you all sorts of excuses about why you don't need to get behind this car. You know, why you not, or you have a bad day at work and you wake up the next morning and your brain comes up with all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't go into work. I'm sick. I hope my arm, my arm is sore. It'll give you fake pains. You know, so on this side, you have the emotional brain, the risk assessing brain going, don't go there. Bad things happen in that place. Don't go there. You know, on the other side, you have the logical brain going, rent, mortgage, bills, car payments. And very quickly, that overrides it. But the more conflict scars you build up, the harder it is to override it with logic. And eventually people burn out and just go, look, it's just not worth it. The fear is too much. And it's not, a, I'm scared. It's a bad things keep happening to me in that place. So my brain is protecting me from going to that place. You know, and it has to be a very challenging mindset to, to go up and go to work every day with that in the back of your head. You know, that you're dreading going into work because of these things that have happened that you haven't managed intrapersonally uh, in your head. You know, and we all get it. I think there was a statistic realized uh, University of Coventry, I believe, this year uh, in the UK about security staff. This is 70% of security staff are suffering from some form of PTSD. You know, and I don't want to glamorize that and say we're suffering in the same way as somebody who's gone to war, etc. is, but PTSD comes on a lot of different levels and it might be even low level. But for somebody who's only experienced that low level, that still hurts. That still affects people. You know, uh, so, for example, when I go and train, I'm often amazed, uh, and, and Mike can probably support, he's been on some courses with me really recently. When you go and train with um, office staff, and they ask you questions, and you're talking to them about conflict, and I'm coming from a place of high-risk conflict, aggression and violence, and they ask you something, and you answer them with a very simple tip, and it's like a light bulb moment, and you go, oh my God, that's so simple. You know, what do I do if somebody shouts down the phone at me continuously? Oh, that's easy, you just you hang up the phone. And you go, oh my God, that's so easy. You know, but for them being shouted down the phone, because that's all they've experienced, being shouted down the phone is terrifying. You know, they've never been in a high-risk conflict situation, somebody arguing, fighting, giving out. The only thing they've ever been exposed to is somebody shouting down the phone. And that's terrifying for them. You know, so conflict in context is very, very, very important. You know, some people are better equipped for some kinds of conflict than others. You know, my, my kid goes to after school and I say this all the time, you know, uh, I always say, give me a big angry person. I can talk to them any day of the week. You know, the two ladies that look after my kid and his friends in after school, 17 kids between the ages of nine and 11. Yeah. There isn't any amount of money in the world you could pay me to do their job. <laughs> None. You know, give me big angry guy any day of the week. I can deal with him. We tend to be more comfortable in dealing with things who were, who we see us similar to ourselves, take us out of our comfort zone, and it's very, very challenging. You know, we end up dealing with conflict at an inappropriate uh, stage, I suppose, uh, at a stage that's not suited to what it did. But all that we know is that the, the high-risk conflict situations, the dominant, the competing type, they lead to more instances of stress and conflict because you're engaging in more conflict. The avoiding types and the obliging types lead to high instance because you're being victimized, you're having conflict pushed on you. And we all know that the better we learn to compromise and collaborate, the less conflict and stress we suffer. But it's a very challenging place to get to. I think life experience is the only thing that brings you there, in my experience of it. You know, uh, that stress inoculation that only comes from exposing yourself to conflict situations, you know, and exposing yourself in the right way to conflict situations. 
when it's managed poorly, it usually leads to managing conflict at the wrong stage of what we call the cycle of conflict. And the cycle of conflict is the four stages or phases that every single argument or row will have. And this is not something I come up with, it's known for generations and generations. Every argument has a trigger, something that sets it off, either psychologically, incidentally, or situationally, something sets it off. It has an escalation phase, which is where it grows. And where we're, when we're comfortable dealing with conflict, that's where we tend to be good at operating. When we're dealing with a conflict where we are not comfortable, a type of conflict where we're not comfortable, we end up dealing with it in crisis mode, which is the next phase. We end up going to, oh my God, I don't have a logical response for this. I'm going to go into crisis mode. I'm going to go into fight or flight, our secondary uh, limbic responses. We either go with primary limbic responses or amygdalic responses, uh, fight or flight, or secondary ones, um, freeze, flinch, or fawn. Um, and we'll talk about them if we have some, some time later on. And then the most often overlooked after the crisis or after the escalation phase is the recovery phase afterwards, how we look after ourselves after a conflict situation. And I think, in my experience, anyway, we have all been guilty over the years of trying to tough it out when we probably should have sat down and had a cup of coffee or taken the rest of the day off or taken the rest of the night off. You know, we've, we've pushed ourselves through something that's ended up with us being restless or having an argument at home because of something that happened in, in work because we didn't look after ourselves. And we all know, you know, we've all worked in the industry for a long, long time, I'm assuming. We've all seen things, marriages ruined, families lost, breakdowns, serious injuries because people don't manage intrapersonal conflict very well. We try and tough it out. You know, and we don't release it or manage it the way it's meant to be to be meant to be managed. Jeez, I'm gonna start tears in this now. There's gonna be lads, but my marriage is broken down. I'm not I'm not pointing at you in particular if you're listening to this or watching this, right? It's a big generalization that I'm making there. <laughs> but it does, it certainly does happen in the industry, I think. And I'm sure we've all seen it uh, over the over the years with, with various people, really, really good people. Yeah, certainly, Sean, it's gone to depression and suicide, even with uh, a lot of people, a lot of people that we all know, you know, and not just suicide, but actually on the opposite side of that potential homicide where people have gone way over the top on other people that possibly didn't deserve it. And but for the grace of God, there could be probably many people, me included uh, in this course, who could end up doing serious time in bar, behind bars uh, for stuff that people probably didn't deserve over the years. You know, because we didn't manage conflict very well uh, internally. You know, nobody admits Ant and Crunel on one of my courses. Yeah? <laughs> you have to do it. Uh, tell me to stop recording before you do it. Um, so we look a bit about neuroscience, and I, I don't have that long, so I'm not going to go into too much of the, uh, I suppose the um, uh, the science of neuroscience. I suppose, but I have my brain picture up on the screen, and I know people that's listening to a podcast is not going to get this, but the vast majority of the time we go around dealing with prefrontal cortex. Um, cerebrum logical brain as we walk around we deal very well with rationalization it is with rationalization decision making planning consequence language numbers you know it's that's the bit of the brain that separates us from chimps dolphins and people that think Leeds United are going to stay in the Premier League uh, so it separates us from you know people who just aren't rational uh, in general so <clears throat> Most of the time we go around dealing with that. At the very back then we have the cerebellum, the automatic functions of the brain, reptile brain. And then buried deep in the brain, we have the limbic system. And that's the bit we're concerned about, caveman brain. You know? And that deals with emotion and the transfer of risk to the, to the cerebellum. And it's the two little almond-shaped things in there, the amygdala, 
you know, and that's the bits we're concerned about. When the amygdala gets stimulated, so when the signal comes in, we generally process it through the limbic system, comes in through our senses, through the hippocampus, and we ask ourselves, how does this picture make me feel? How does this situation or incident make me feel that I'm involved in? You know, based on all the sensory inputs that I'm getting. Am I happy, sad, disgusted, surprised? Based on that, it goes up to the logical brain. How do I know how to respond logically when I feel this way? And then down to the acting brain to be active on. But when the amygdala gets stimulated, signal comes in through the hippocampus, through the sensory organs, into the limbic system. How does this make you feel? If the answer is fear or risk, bang, amygdala goes off. Buddy, you need to be dealing with this and you need to be dealing with it fast. And it's often much quicker than system one brain. You know, it's often much, much quicker than the logical brain. That's that good feeling that you get when you know something's wrong, but you don't quite know what. Your logical brain hasn't figured it out yet. You know, and that comes to our experiential learning, and we'll talk about that in a, in a little while. You know, but when the amygdala goes off, we get the adrenal release, we get the cortisol release, we get the non trust coming into the brain, all those toxins, and it starts to take over. And the problem we have with adrenaline and cortisol is that when we were designed with our adrenal system, it was predominantly wired for fight or flight. It was predominantly wired that when we faced the threat, we immediately killed it or ran away, and we used up the adrenaline. Now we don't do that anymore. We're forced to engage in this thing called social argument. You know, and we're full of adrenaline. The person in front of us, as a customer or a service user or a client, they have nothing to lose. They're burning off all their adrenaline and all their cortisol. They're using up their energy by shouting and roaring and posturing and dominating. And we're holding it all in. And we're staying calm. And we're staying professional. So adrenaline and cortisol is pushed around the, the bloodstream. And we start pooling all the oxygenated blood into the core. So we start losing function in the prefrontal cortex. So the more, the longer an argument goes on, the less capable we are of dealing with rational decision-making because the more blood is going to the limbic system and that's the only part that's functioning in the core of the brain. You know? So our goal should be with conflict, and this is one of the concepts we talk about later on, the goal should be with conflict uh, to change it as quick as we can, either solve it quickly or change it to a planned conflict. You know, change it to a change the time, change the environment to something that we can manage or control. You know, uh, and the issue that we often have, particularly guys who came from a door supervision background, is that we deal quite a lot with reactive conflict. We deal with conflict on the other guys' terms. We are reactive to where when they come down. Everything's in their favor. You know. Now there's tools that we obviously we've all built up over the years to to sort that out and to, to diffuse that and stuff like that. But in general, we're acting on their terms. Whereas in other stuff, you know, uh, where it's planned conflicts, where we have to go down and have a difficult conversation with somebody, et cetera, et cetera. We can have a planned conflict. We can plan the outcome. We can plan the time. We can plan the environment, all those things. And that gives us a sense of, of control and purpose over things. You know? And some people would ask on a training course, well, how do you control the limbic system? How do you stop the limbic system from kicking in? And the reality is you don't. The limbic system is going to kick in until the day you die. Every single time, regardless. All you can do is control your response to the limbic system. You know, uh, activating. There's no controlling the limbic system. It's been long, long before you and long after you. All we do is control how we respond once it gets activated. 
and there is ways of doing that in high stress environments, how we learn to control ourselves in high stress environments and stuff like that. And we'll talk about some of the concepts. Probably one of the better ones is um, graduated stress inoculation. You know, by far the best type of training, and I know we've got some ex-military guys here, by far the best type of training you can have is graduated stress inoculation to manage limbic system response by putting people in controlled situations and slowly ramping up the stress. The problem in the security industry is that that takes a significant investment in terms of time and resource to build a person up to a stage where they're capable of dealing with a high level of, of stress and conflict, you know, significant amount of exposures. As security professionals, as people who want to do well in their career, what we often find ourselves doing is going off and paying for it in our own time. You know, we go off off our own back and we go do these training courses or we go start martial arts and we find some form of stress inoculation or we go do a gym, you know, walk out in the gym, whatever the case might be, you know. But as security providers, I suppose, providing security for, for other people, going back to that intrapersonal thing as well, I often say, you know, you have absolutely no business looking after the safety of others if you cannot look after yourself, if you're not looking after yourself mentally. You know, you have no business putting yourself in a position where you can look after the safety of others if you can't control your own emotional response. You know, uh, and I think it's something that we have to get out there to people in the industry that if you look after the safety of others while not looking after your own well-being, ability to manage your own emotions, uh, even physical ability, then you have no place looking after the ability of others because you're more of a liability than you are an ability you know, as you, as you go out there, you know, and you're more than likely going to make any particular situation worse. I talked about a couple of weeks ago on a different podcast about this principle of bounded rationality. Uh, I don't know if you've come across that principle before, uh, Sherman's, it's actually an economic principle to do with sales and stuff like that. Uh, sales principle said that we act in bounded rationality, not perfect rationality, you know, but we are judged in perfect rationality, you know? So we act in bounded rationality, and bounded rationality is that we are rational, but we are influenced by the environment, by time constraints, often artificial time constraints that we place in ourselves, and by our own cognitive biases, values, and beliefs. So when we're under stress, we never make perfect decisions. But we're going to be judged by somebody sitting in a judge's desk or a manager's office who's never stood in your shoes. And they're going to look at your behavior in perfect rationality with no fear no adrenaline, no stress, no experience, and no training. So what I say about bounded rationality is that we are, we are never going to make perfect decisions in conflict. All we can expect to do is make the best bad decision at the time that hopefully moves us towards a solution. If that makes sense. You know? So we're never going to make a perfect decision under stress. So our goal has to be to have enough control over our emotions to make a decent decision that moves us more towards getting back to a position of control, moves us more towards a rational response, you know? And that's what bounded rationality is. It's not about accepting, look, we're going to make poor decisions because we have values, beliefs, and time constraints. You know, it's about saying, look, I know I have these values, beliefs, so I'm going to make this decision to get myself to a position of control till I can make good uh, decisions, you know? And gradually building on our suboptimal decision-making until we get back to a decent position of, of decision-making, you know? So the example we would often give is that uh, uh, we're breaking up a third party fight between two people, you know? 
chances of arriving into the middle of that and doing one magic technique that solves the problem is pretty slim. You know? So what are we going to do? We're going to arrive in there and we're going to take control of something. We're going to grab an arm, a leg, whatever we can get control of. And we're going to take control of that. And that doesn't solve the problem, but it gets us towards control. And once we get a hold of that, we might move towards uh, some kind of restraint. And when we have a restraint, we might now be able to survey the, the situation a little bit better and see, well, what's the best route of getting these people out of here? But we can't do that till we get restraint. And then we start moving towards the, the exits. So we're making decisions. None of those decisions solve the problem, but they're moving us towards a solution to the problem. We're not going to arrive there, do a magic move and end up outside. We're going to make a load of decent decisions that move us towards a solution. Same, it could be a retail security, it could be a close protection situation where there's a, an ambush situation on your, on your principal or your client. You're not going to make the perfect choice right now. You're going to make the best bad choice available to you while you've been attacked to move yourself towards a position where you can make better choices. You know, and sometimes it's about, it's about accepting that when it comes to conflict, you know, and not putting pressure on yourself to make the perfect bad, to make the perfect choice under pressure, because that's much too much of an expectancy to put onto our, onto ourselves uh, as we go about. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Experience, somebody wrote in experience is key. I think it is uh, because we learn from every single experience we had, we've, we've had or had, I think it is a, a huge learning curve for us, I suppose. You know, I often talk about, uh, I said at the start about academia, about uh, book learning, you know, uh, or learn stereotypes, what we think we know. You know, uh, the best example that I have on that is um, manual handling training in the industry. I think it's one of the most detrimental things in the security industry is how we apply manual handling training. I'm sure most of you have done a manual handling training course here. And I'm pretty sure that on most of those manual handling training courses, you were brought in and showed how to lift an empty box of paper. You know, photocopy your paper. You know? And how many times since the day you did that training course have you ever had to lift an empty box of paper? You know, I've never ever been punched by an empty box of paper as I picked it up off the ground. You know, but it's only when we go out there and start trying to apply that to the real world that we realize its limitations. And that's the same with every training. It's the same, I grew up in martial arts and when I get into the security industry, I very quickly realized the limitations of traditional martial arts. You know, you have to be able to take knowledge and skills and apply them to the real, to the real world in a way that benefits you. You know, I'm not just talking about benefiting you from a, from a physical skin point of view, benefiting you in a way that doesn't lose you your job. You know, I'm sure anyone who's gone into the martial skills or the, the, the exoteric skills of martial arts will tell you that, you know, you've probably been taught lots and lots of techniques. You know, you can probably count on one hand the amount of times a roundhouse kick was a solution to the problem that was in front of you. You know, it probably was a, a solution, but it probably wasn't the solution, <laughs> you know, because it would result in losing a job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one of the concepts of complex is you have to make everything work for you. There's people on here who are very advanced medical instructors. I know at least one or two who are on here are in that boat. You know, and you always say, look, stuff learned in a classroom, you don't know if it works until you actually go out and apply it on somebody. I've had, I used to teach first aid and I've had people come on first aid courses for four or five days, you know, come do a first aid course. And at the end, you would say to that person, you know, happy enough now you're going out and doing what you do. Oh yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. No, no, well, I'll never actually do it. So what do you mean you'd never do it? So terrified of blood. I go, why would you sign up for a fourth day course? 
Oh, it's handy skill to, to, to know, like you know, it's just handy to know. Never do it in the real world if somebody was seriously injured, I wouldn't be able to. But you know, I have the training now and all, you know. So they, they collect knowledge and skills, but they don't actually know if this applies in the real world. You know, they have no idea if it applies in the in the real world. I know some of you have gone through uh, academia and college and university and stuff like that. And I found that when I went through university and stuff like that, you know, that the people who had come up with these theories had never actually tested them in the real world. You know, they don't know if they, they work or not in the real world. Uh, and that's the thing with conflict and how we apply conflict concepts is concepts are fantastic, but the concept that somebody puts in their book and they could be the greatest minds in the world, you know, two what I believe to be the greatest minds in the world, Jeff Thompson, Rory Miller, those type guys, uh, I've got people still coming in here, uh, you know, greatest minds and they've applied it to the real world, but just because they could make it work doesn't mean I could make it work. And just because I can make something work doesn't mean you can make it work, you know? So it's about taking the concepts and the knowledge and the skills and stuff like that and applying them for you with your personality, background, body type, all that kind of stuff. You know, I know people who could read all the books in the world about posturing and how posturing works, how we make ourselves big and angry and we dominate the proxemics and we make the other person back down. Yeah. But if you're five foot two and you have a high pitched voice, all the posturing in the world is not going to help you. And that's just down to body type. You know? And just people who are five foot two and have a high pitched squeaky voice could be fantastic at other elements of conflict that I couldn't pull off. You know? No way in the world I could pull it off, some of the stuff that they do, you know? But it's taking the concepts and applying them to you, I think, uh, is an important thing to, to bear in mind, I suppose. Uh, so bear in mind that most of the time, when we deal with conflict, we are dealing predominantly with limbic thinking and we're trying to remain in rational control. I often talk about the three C's in conflict, confidence, clarity, and consequence. You know, uh, the portrayal of conflict, even when you're not feeling conflict, uh, confident, is huge. You know, I think one of the most un underrated things in conflict management is this element of command presence. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with uh, physical size or anything like that. It's the arrival of a person who looks and acts like they know what they're like they know what they're doing. And I think confidence is a huge thing. Uh, I remember being over the years at various seminars, and as you probably guess, with I've taken a lot of my stuff from those seminars and people who were trained with over the years, great minds. And I suppose you will often come a, um, <clears throat> come across people who will talk about. I'm sure you've all come across this concept of defence, Jeff Thompson's concept of defence and principle of defence and stuff like that. And I often talk, you know, having the hands in front of you and managing the proxemics of your workspace and stuff like that, or as I like to call it, you know, uh, protecting your workspace, you know, keep, keeping that workspace sterile. And I often used to talk about taking it one step forward and confidence is about painting the fence. It's keeping your, your fence painted, you know? It's no good having a fence if your fence looks dilapidated and people don't believe in it. Confidence is that fresh whitewash that you put on the fence, that people actually see that the fence exists and it's in good condition, you know? Uh, and I think that's very much so, you know? The, the fact that you, what's the old saying that was drummed into me when I started off in the industry? Um, if you look like you know what you're doing, you act like you know what you're doing, people assume you know what you're doing. And it's only a very small proportion of people who will test those skills. You know, if you look and act like you know what you're doing. You know, it's a security industry take on fake it till you make it. You know, <laughs> but it is a very valid thing. You know, where you walk in and you're acting like you know what you're doing. And it doesn't have to be acting the hard man. I think somebody put in there, it's professionalism as well. It's going in there with a professionalism 
that shows that, yeah, look, I know what I'm talking about here. You know, I know what I'm doing. I'm capable. I'm not just capable, but I'm proficient. And you show that in your body language and everything you do. Even if you're feeling, um, <clears throat> even if you are feeling, yeah, it's a, it's a good one there. Abdul, Abdul mentioned there, bro broken window theory and defensible space. They often equate broken window theory to conflict management, you know? If you're standing out there and you're trying to portray a, a very big, you know, you're trying to portray a level of professionalism, but your shorts is dirty and your trousers haven't been earned. You know, it's the same as broken windows too. If you ever come across in criminology, you know, the building that's dilapidated attracts crime. You know, the security operative that doesn't look like they know what they're doing attracts trouble. You know, and as we all know, this is not a difficult industry to, to find trouble in. If you go out there looking for trouble, it will find you really, 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 really quickly. You know, so I suppose it's, it's a case of not giving, giving off that, you know, and when I talk about when, when Abdul mentioned their defensible space, I think that's a very good uh, concept to have. I talk about it as a sterile space, you know, and portraying our layers of, of security, you know, where we want a person to stop subliminally. And we could talk, I could talk for days about body language when we're doing the, the, the level six course, the level six conflict management course. I think I've got a full four hours just talking about body language and, and, and uh, communicating through body language. Um, and it's one of the more enjoyable parts that people get when they start being able to project body language and voice. I think that's something that only comes with confidence. You know, when we start off with body language and voice with very little experience to go with that, our defensible space ends up being probably within arms width because that's where we're comfortable. And as we gain more experience, we learn to project our voice and project our defensible space a lot more with subliminal messages. Would you agree with that? That we end up actually controlling our personal space gets bigger we actually get more comfortable with people close, closer to us, but less people come closer to us because we project their personal space subliminally. You know, without making people scared or afraid, we manage to project professionalism. You know, uh, and that's a skill in itself. And I think it only comes with, with practicing it. Ken, yeah, it goes far as to say, um, there's a guy called Joe Saunders uh, in Australia. He runs a very good uh, podcast called the Managing Violence Podcast. And he wrote a very good article on it there recently. He calls it uh, assertive courtesy. I like that, that term very, very well. He said, you know, it's, it's being nice to people, but they know that you're capable enough of being nice. You know, it's kind of a, a spin on the, the Jordan Peterson phrase that he often uses about a good man. You know, if you've come across that before, he says that uh, a good man is not a harmless man. He says a good man is a man who's capable of doing violence, yet chooses not to. You know, and for the ladies in the group, I don't mean to just say man there, he's talking about all, all people when he's doing that, but, you know, it's, it's knowing that you have the capacity and the proficiency to deal with a conflict, regardless of the level that conflict gets to, usually results in you being capable of managing at a lower level, because you're confident, you don't have anything to prove to yourself, and when we're less confident in our own abilities, we end up trying to prove things to ourselves, and it often escalates conflict in my experience. You know, where you have a person that's trying to prove to themselves that they're able to manage a high-risk conflict. So what do they do to prove that? They go out and engage in high-risk conflict. You know, they let, allow, manifest high-risk conflicts to prove to themselves that they can do it. When the reality is, when you get really good at managing high-risk conflict, you don't need to engage in high-risk conflict anymore. You know you can do it. So you deal with it at a lower level. You know, because you know you can if you wanted to, you could deal with it up there, but you don't have to. You can deal with it down there if you want to. So it gives you options, or I often talk about toolbox thinking. It gives you tool, tools in the toolbox, and it allows you to choose the right tool for the job. 
when you start off, especially if you've got backgrounds in martial skills, you know, I said, all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You know, when you start off with a very select number of hard tools, you know, the tendency is to go and use those hard tools all the time. Like I say, what do we do? We end up driving screws with screw with drills and hammering nails. You know, it's only after a while that we realize we have a measuring tape. You know, and if we wanted, we could probably find where that nail goes first time instead of hammering a load of nails to figure out where it goes. You know, so it's, it's developing, it's having background knowledge, understanding the concepts that allows us to have the tools so we can choose the right tool for the job. You know, but if we don't build that underpinning knowledge and that background, you know, I often tell when people come in, most commonly asked questions I get on the pages, on the social media pages is about the law. You know, uh, the same thing, I was, if you don't have underpinning knowledge about the law, you have no good, you're, you, you should not be putting yourself in a situation where you're interacting with the law. You know, and as happy as I am to answer people's questions on Facebook and LinkedIn about the law and stuff like that, you know, using the defense of some bloke on Facebook told me, and just believing that without going off and looking up your own stuff, I think is, 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 is criminally stupid on your part, you know, because it isn't going to stand up in a, in, a, in a court case. And it comes back to conflict as well, you know, just believing that something I said on a webinar or on a blog article or whatever the case might be is going to work for you. It's pretty dangerous putting your teeth on the line to prove that in a, in a live situation, isn't it? you know, you know, and coming back to me going, well, actually what you said didn't work. Look, I'm missing all my teeth. That proves it didn't work. You know, without going and saying, okay, I'm going to take these concepts and say, how can I make that work for me? You know, in the, in the grand scheme of things. So the other one is clarity, understanding that not just our we, the second C, confidence was the first and second one's clarity, not just our we thinking with limbic thinking, but they are much more thinking with limbic thinking than we are. The other side, we're the conflict manager here. We have a huge advantage over the person who's arguing with us. We have the advantage of operant conditioning. And <clears throat> I suppose the advantage of operant conditioning that we have is that that day that that person is arguing with us is the first time they've ever had that argument. You know, they've never engaged in this argument. You've probably had that same argument 20, 30, 40 times over the same subject, the same cause, you know, with that person. So you're better able to control your emotion than they are. So it's about understanding, look, they are at a much higher limbic state than we are. So when we're speaking to them, we have to spell things out very, very clearly. You know, I often talk with guards, uh, you know, Irish police officers, for those of you not in Ireland, uh, about this concept of at the side of the road. You know, when the guard is trying to explain the law to somebody. And even with door staff when you're dealing with drunk people. You know, quoting law to a drunk person. You know, <laughs> you know, is the, is the equivalent of quoting quantum physics to a four-year-old. Their brain is not, it does not physically have the capacity to understand what it is that you're saying to them. And the same thing with people who are, you know, on high levels of stress when they're in stressful situations. You know, quoting complex language to them is completely pointless. Their brain is not in a position where they can soak it in. They do not have the capacity to soak it in and process it as rational thought. You know, so... What we have to achieve, I suppose, is by putting ourselves in their shoes. What will a person voluntarily intoxicate? It's just but like all the research would say, you know, uh, or, or lots of research, come back to the early 60s, they have research that suggests that adrenaline and cortisol's impact on the brain, on decision-making, is just as negative as alcohol is. 
people under high levels of stress make just as poor decisions as people consuming alcohol. You know, they make very, very strange, very, very strange decisions. You know, people under huge levels of stress, you know. Uh, so yeah, Abdul, yeah, voluntarily intoxicated, I think is a good phrase of, of putting it. So us, you know, clarity is very, very important, but not just clarity in what we say, clarity in what we're portraying. So making sure that what we're portraying physically is matching up with the message that we're sending, you know, in that, in that circle of, of, of communication, when we start talking about Moravian's law in a while, or Maribond's law, whoever you want to pronounce his name, um, that what we are saying is what we are portraying. And if we're saying, step back now, or I'm going to do this, that our body language supports that. And our tone supports that. If we're saying, yes, I'm here to help you, that our body language and our, and our supports uh, says that. You know, um, <clears throat> People will say the most horrible things. And I don't have the slide in here, but I often talk about the, the scale of abuse that people throw out. Yeah? And most of us here, I'd say, probably live with um, significant others. And they often say, we often say the things, the worst things to those closest to us. But we don't have to go through the motions with people closest to us. We know exactly what to say. I'm sure if you wanted to, you could leave this call today, go into your um, significant other, whoever that significant other is, and within 20 seconds, if you wanted to, you could start an argument. You know exactly what to say. Usually it's for me, it's the fact that I've come home from work is what starts it off. It's uh, <laughs> just a fact. <laughs> um, I'm saying that really quietly because she's in the other room. She hears me, I'm in trouble. Right? <laughs> so... <clears throat> In terms of, uh, yeah, the, the, somebody said red mist and white mist. Yeah, the same, the same principles apply. Our logical decision-making goes out the window. We say the immediate things. But when a person doesn't know us, when we're dealing with stranger conflict, I suppose, well, they have to go through what I call the fishing trip. You know, they throw out fishing hooks and see what gets a reaction when it comes to conflict management. You know, so it'll generally, for me, start off with role-based abuse. You know, it'll be about your job, the policy, the procedure, the strategy, whatever that might be. You have a crap job. Not only do you have a crap job, you're crap at your crap job. Could you not get a real job? Did you collect tokens on a Kellogg's box for your security license? You know? Could you not get into the police? You know, stuff like that. How many years in college do you have to do to work in security? It's about the job. You know, and most of us don't hold enough value on our job to argue back with people about that. You know? Yeah. There's not many people that'll ever say, you know, don't you dare talk about my security industry like that. You know, I have like a, a PSA logo tattooed on their arm or something like that, you know, uh, things like that, you know, uh, just to make themselves feel special and part of the club, you know. Um, <clears throat> then when they don't get a reaction, because most of us aren't, they move to personal abuse. It becomes about you as an individual. You're fat, bald, ugly, and stupid. That was me leaving the house this morning, you know. And it doesn't even have to make sense to people. It just has to make them feel better. You know, most uh, personal abuse is not designed to make you feel bad. It's designed to make them feel better. So when they have that situation where they walk away, that dominant personality, they win. They've blatantly lost the argument, but they can go and sit in their car and talk to their friends in the pub and say, yeah, I didn't get in, or yeah, I didn't get what I wanted, or yeah, I didn't get the refund, but I made him feel bad. And that's their win. It's not about making you feel bad. It's about making them feel better about having lost, you know? And it doesn't even have to make sense. A friend of mine's ex-military and we are standing on a, a bar door one night and um, <clears throat> across the road, this guy shouts over him, look at you standing there with your shiny shoes in you. You know, 
Now, you know when you have a man at a stage where the only thing they can insult is the shininess of your shoes, that you've basically won that argument, and there's no point in engaging with that person any further, you know? Um, but it makes him feel better to say that from across the road. He's in front of his mates, and his mates can go, yeah, you told him, <laughs> you know? And that makes him feel better. That's his win. Uh, you're going to have to excuse the language. I'll tone it down a little bit. But one of my personal favorites, when I walked in bars and nightclubs, people used to think I was Eastern European for some reason. I used to always get, you know, go back to your own country and stuff like that. You know, I'm kind of going, where do you want me to go? <laughs> you know, basically homeless if I don't live here, you know. Um, but we, we'd refused entry to a hotel to this gentleman one night, and he, he stands across the road and he shouts across the road, you know, why don't you F off back to Poland, you Hungarian P? I'm looking at him going, we were calling him geographically challenged. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he didn't know what country he was in, you know. But the guy who was in was saying, are you going to let him talk to you like that? And I was going, there's literally no point in arguing with that man. He doesn't know where he is, you know, but they will say the most horrible stuff. And when it moves on from, from that type of abuse, it will move up to what I call peripheral abuse. People in your periphery, in your circle, you know. So, <clears throat> oh, thanks, Stephen. I appreciate that. I'm not even going to say that out loud. <laughs> so <clears throat> when, it, uh, when it comes to people in your periphery, it could be your colleagues, you know. Uh, and research has shown behavioral science research, very interesting would say that we are more likely to intervene for a colleague being abused at an earlier stage than we would have ourselves been subjected to the abuse. Who would agree with that? That you'd step in at an earlier stage, if you saw your partner being abused, then you would if it was you, because I have that protective nature. You know, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? You know? But peripheral abuse could extend to, like you said, your colleague, or it could get even nastier, your kids, your family, your mother your wife, your husband, you know. I grew up in Dublin, and basically when I grew up in Dublin as a teenager, all you really needed to win most arguments with your mates was a good your mother joke, you know. If you're the half-decent your mother joke, you're going to win most arguments with your mates. Something goes, ha-ha, you fell off your bike, yeah, well, your mother's fat, so. And I automatically win that argument, you know. Unless he's willing to punch me in the face, I win that argument, you know. Because you just don't go there with people, you know. <laughs> and that gets most, most of the, uh, that wins most arguments with people, like, you know. But it can move to peripheral and you can say the most horrible things about your kids. Why do they say that? Because they know that that's most likely going to get a reaction. Now, bear in mind that they don't even know whether you have kids or not when they say that. You know, they're not shouting at what you are. They're not shouting at who you are. They're shouting at what you are. You know, they shout at what you represent. You know, and keeping that composure, somebody's put it in there, composure, uh, is quite an important one. Why? Because the third word, professional consequence. The third C is consequence. So we had confidence, we had clarity, and then we have consequence. You know? And consequence, I think, is one of the biggest things in conflict. As long as a person does not see a consequence of their action, the action will continue in most cases. Why? Because it is being successful. It's doing for them, it is achieving a goal for them, shouting, roaring, calling you names. You know? And professional consequence is a huge thing. What is the consequence to the customer, service user, uh, clown, whatever you want to call him, uh, not nice guy standing at the, uh, in front of you to shouting, roaring and screaming in your face? What is the consequence to them? Very, very little. What's the worst that's going to happen to them in their eyes? When we have them in a proxemic position, especially where there's alcohol involved, they're, the ideal uh, situation for conflict, how does conflict like to exist? It exists in lines and tunnels. Our ideal thing for having an argument is where we're standing more than arms away from a person and we can see all the weapons that they might use to harm us. You know? 
So where a person is more than arm's distance, they're perfectly happy to stand there and trade insults. They know they're physically safe. And they know there's a professional consequence to us. No consequence to them to shouting, roaring, and screaming. Huge consequence to us to reacting. And there are far too many security people, ex-security people, sitting on dole queues and other jobs that they never wanted to do because they reacted to some person who didn't, didn't even merit a reaction. You know? And some guy now is sitting at home with a grin in his on his face knowing that he cost you a job. You know? And you basically handed the win to them by losing your head. You know? The ultimate satisfaction. As long as they're shouting, roaring, screaming their head off, they're burning off adrenaline, posturing, loopholing, all the things we, we would talk about in de-escalation techniques, so I'm not going to get into on this. As long as they are doing that, there's no consequence to them and no consequence to you. As soon as you react, you introduce the consequence. You get to introduce the consequence regardless. You know, It's whether that consequence is positive or negative for you is what's, what's important. And we talk about in a couple of minutes, introducing that consequence and how we introduce that consequence into a, into a situation. Uh, so we talk about, I think uh, somebody mentioned there a while ago, I believe it was yourself, Abdul, uh, about introducing, well, what's it required? You know, and often, well, a conflict requires three things to happen. It requires opportunity, it requires motivation, and most of all, it requires intent or willingness. The only two that we can affect are these two here, motivation and opportunity. A person's motivation or reason for having an argument with us and their opportunities to do so. This one up here, we can't. That's willingness, intent. A person is either willing to or not willing to engage in an argument over a particular topic. And we've no control over that. Values and beliefs is what controls that. And we have no idea what their values and belief system. I'm going to do a quick, quick poll with you guys. And if you're listening on a podcast, you can have a think about this. Uh, <clears throat> you leave this uh, webinar today or you finish up listening to us. You walk down the street, and as you're walking down the street, you observe a man hitting a woman. How many people would physically intervene to stop a man hitting a woman? Show of hands or just give me a thumbs up or a comment. Domestic boyfriend, girlfriend. How many people? Got one, a couple of people. Same scenario. <clears throat> The silent people have obviously dealt with domestics before. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got a few people there. Uh, same situation. You are walking down the street today after you finish up here and you observe a parent hitting a child. How many people would intervene physically? All people. No, I'd be surprised, Abdul, of all people. How many people would intervene to stop a person hitting a child, a parent hitting a child? Few knows, yeah. And <clears throat> somebody else coming in. Very few, yeah. You're right here, and I think yeah, everyone should, yeah. But should is a big thing, yeah. Um, that's a tough one, yeah. It is a tough one. And walking down the street today, and you see a person kicking a small dog. How many people would physically intervene to stop that from happening? Every hand in the group goes up. Every thirty-seven people. So. About half the group put their hand up to say they'd intervene to stop a man hitting his girlfriend. And double the amount would do that to stop a person hitting a child. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just values and beliefs and experiences that you've had. You know, 
those responses are based on experiences that you've had. And somebody mentioned something in there. Um, I can't remember who it was. It was well, everybody should. And there's a big difference between should and would. And that's that difference again. We're going back to the difference in capability and proficiency. I remember listening to a talk about very recently about um, a person said that they had a person in, in their neighborhood who was convicted of, of sex crimes and they've been sent to prison for it. And as it was leading up to the trial, uh, everybody in the in the place was there. Uh, he's a monster. You know, if I see him, because he's been sent to prison, everybody, when I see him, I'm going to do this. When I see him, I'm going to do that. Somebody should do this to him. So your man goes away, he goes to prison and he comes back out there recently and he's back in the neighborhood. And he's again doing terrible things. He's harassing people and annoying people and stuff like that. And those same people are sitting in the bars and passing on the street and they're looking at him. And they're all saying, somebody should do something. And that's where we come in, you know, security practitioners. Everybody says somebody should. Unfortunately, nobody wants to be the somebody until you sign on the dotted line and you're the somebody. You put the badge on, you put the jacket on and you're the somebody. And the expectation is that you're going to do something. So when people are, you know, coming in and they're in a vulnerable situation, the expectation is that you're the person who's going to do something. You know, and for everything in this course, you have to decide whether you are or not. There's no shame in saying I'm not. But like I said at the start, we have to risk assess against that. If you're not willing to put your safety at risk to save or protect a complete stranger in a defined set of circumstances, then you need to risk assess against that and the roles that you're signing up for. And there's no shame in that. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever. In fact, I would much prefer if many people over the years had come out to me and said, sorry, boss, not for me, and walked away. Instead of waiting for two or three months when something happens and abandoning their colleagues and somebody gets hurt because of it. You know, so it comes back to that self-awareness. Again, being self-aware to recognize your strengths and your weaknesses and either accepting them or working on them. You know, but not just saying, yeah, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Uh, so the motivation and opportunity we look at a kind of a technical level. De-escalation stuff works down here. Deterrence and obstacles work with opportunity. And motivation, we can de-escalate and communicate. At opportunity at higher levels where it moves to aggressive and violence, all we can do is remove opportunity either by leaving, by rotation, by force of numbers, or by physical intervention. They're really our only tools when it comes to high-risk conflict. And I suppose one of the concepts I always try to get across to people when it comes to high-risk conflict as opposed to low-risk conflict, I'm a big fan of the belief that most, probably 80 to 90%, can be dealt with at a motivational level. We can de-escalate. But one of the worst mistakes that you can make is not recognizing when a situation has gone beyond being talked out of. And I've seen a significant amount of people over the years get hurt trying to talk themselves out of a situation that was long gone past being talked out of. You know, self-awareness is key, you know, because there's a consequence to both parties from conflict management or from conflict. Uh, I think a hugely important thing that's not very well known in the security industry is this here. This is, uh, has anyone ever come across, if anyone ever has, I really highly recommend the work of Judith Glazer. Has anyone ever come across Judith Glazer before in conflict management? She unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. She's got a fantastic book called Conversational Intelligence. She worked a lot with children in children from disadvantaged neighborhoods around um, gaining trust and helping that trust in education. And she says that oftentimes when we engage in a person who has had an adrenal response, they found themselves in a bad position and they're engaged in an adrenal response. They're full of cortisol and they're full of adrenaline and they're acting on a, low, a level of low trust. And regardless of what we say to them, they have no reason to believe us. 
because they're in a low trust situation. So before we can solve a situation, we have to, we have to build trust with that person. And that trust can be either transactional or transformational. You know, transactional, I believe in you enough to give you this so that you give me that. You know, that's transactional information. I believe in you enough to tell you my name and date of birth so that you will allow me to access, you know, or transformational, that they absolutely trust you and they're willing to give you the information to, to help them. Now, lots of problems can be dealt with at a tran transactional level, but there are some that you have to understand. Look, unless a person trusts you, you're not going to be able to solve a, a problem. And that's why we talked about that cohesiveness between body language and what we're saying to a person. Because people are much more instinctually listening to our body language and, and our tone rather than what we're actually saying. And we might be saying all the right things, but if our body language doesn't support that, then it's kind of pointless. Um, they have a fantastic podcast based on a work called The Conversation Intelligence Podcast. It's very, very, very good, I have to say. Um, but she talks about, well, building trust within the conversation and that people trust people, congruence, yeah, uh, not organizations. And one of the first things that we should attempt, and I have it in the tips and strategies section later on, one of the key and most powerful things that we have as a concept in building trust is a forced name. And one of the things, one of the first things I teach you on teaching, teaching conflict management at a tactical level, tips and tricks level, is forced name. I often say, get it early and use it often. You know, so getting a forced name and having a forced name, even if it's not a real forced name, um, <clears throat> is very powerful to us. Because all of a sudden, it's not a customer and a security person or a service user and a security person or an aggressor and a security person. It's Tony and Mick, you know? And when you can get that first name early and use it often. So I try to throw it in every two or three sentences. I'll get what you're saying, Mick, you know? And I throw it in every, every couple of sentences, especially when you're dealing with low level stuff, you know, refund issues, stuff like that for the retail security or Manipulation, as I like to call it, you know, people often talk about manipulation being a bad thing. Manipulation is a very positive thing. How many times, those of you who work in the, the close protection industry, have you used manipulation to get you something in a hotel or a venue, you know, for your for your client or VIP that you probably weren't entitled to? You know, how many times have you used uh, manipulation to get a client to do something that they didn't want to do? You know. You manipulate, we manipulate all the time. Sales, it's purely manipulation. You know, it's, um, you know, it, it's selling people a solution. The security industry is based on manipulation. You know, it's selling people a solution to a problem that they don't know they have. You know, that's what we do. We sell people, if we are good at our job, people don't know that they have a security problem. So we have to continually sell them a, a solution to a problem that they don't realize they have. Otherwise we become meaningless. You know? uh, <clears throat> and that's become so, so important in the last while with budgets getting tightened and stuff like that. You know, people saying, yeah, look, we don't really have a security problem anymore. You have the same security problem you always have. You just have other problems that appear higher in, in risk rating damage, you know? And the same thing comes across in, um, in conflict. By being able to show them that they, you know, that we're there to help them, we show them, look, we know you have this problem. Yeah, nobody shows sees their own flaws unless they have them. And the same thing in conflict, you have to say, like, there's three parts to every conflict. Your side, their side, and in the middle is the reality. You know, because their brain doesn't operate on reality, it operates on perception. You know, all of their amygdalic, limbic responses is based on perception. You know, uh, how do we know that? 
uh, it was a great phrase and it's attributed to Mark Twain it's often put out there he, he had this phrase that uh, I've been worried about very many things in my life most of which have never happened you know we our brain operates on worst case scenario when we engage in any type of conflict regardless of whether it's low level or high level our brain prepares them for the worst case scenario so when you're dealing with a customer or a service user they've entered that conversation with all their preconceptions and stereotypes of what a security person is and was and you're automatically starting from that preconception. So if they've had previous bad experiences, they're starting. They've walked themselves up that a security person is a bad person who's a tug and a bully. And that's where they're starting from. You know, So we have to gain that trust before we know it. It's like any industry, I suppose. 20% of the industry doing their job poorly, Pareto's principle. 20% of any industry doing its job poorly would give the other 80% a bad name. And us as the 80% who are professionals and want to do the right thing suffer because of the actions of the 20%. Because of the preconceptions that are formed when the 20% appear on social media. So people see us with, as low trust because of the actions of the 20%. It's the visible actions of the 20%. Nobody notices a security person who opens the door, says hello, says thank you. Everybody remembers the guy who they saw drop kicking your man on social media. You know? Um, <clears throat> so we are automatically starting from a position of low trust. So one of the things we can do to gain that high trust, somebody says that, that name. You know? We're no longer security now. We're John or Mick. You know, so that's all the one thing. We're starting to build that trust. And we start stop talking in terms of uh, me and you and start talking in terms of we. You know, all right, Mick. Sorry, what was your own name, Mick? Mick, I'm John. Let's see what we can do here to sort this for you. You know, so we're getting a forced name and we're talking on we terms all of that, all of a sudden. You know, and that's one of the first things I say to start building trust. But we can't solve a problem at low trust. We have to build the trust first before we solve the solve the problem. They have to see what the problem is, what the real problem is, before we can solve it for them. Yeah, we can't solve a problem that doesn't exist in their head. You know, um, <clears throat> yeah, when you start seeing risk and risk and threat assessments, unfortunately, when it comes to perception, people perceive at their own level. You know, it's like um, that pre, we do this thing called pre-morteming, where we work ourselves up and prepare ourselves in the worst case scenario. Like when, uh, when you're that drive to the dentist, when you're driving towards the dentist and we work ourselves up, we start thinking about the pain and how bad it's going to be and how horrible it's going to be. And then we get there, like the, the actual act is not as bad as the, the situation you know, that you, that you work yourself up into, you know? But we have to, I suppose, gain that person's trust so that we can show them what the real problem is because they're coming from a problem of perception, their perception. And we're coming at it from a problem of perception, you know? So until we get to that, what the actual problem is, we're never going to be able to solve the problem. And the starting point is trust. We have to get that trust. And there's a couple of strategies that we use later on to, to do that, which I'll show. Uh, I'm not going to go too much into the channels or Moravian's law. Suffice to say that everybody knows, or most people would have come across this before, 55% of the message that we portray or the message that we interpret about people, we interpret through body language. But it's how we interpret that body language is important. 38% is, they call it tone, but I prefer to refer to it as attitudinal tones. We read into a person's attitude and tone of voice in the first second and a half or so. And then only 7% in the words. And people are not inclined to believe your words unless it's portrayed congruence, as Stephen said earlier, uh, unless it's congruent with the rest of us. But I suppose it's, where do we make this judgment on what a person's like, this initial judgment 
on what the person's like based on their body language. And how we do it is we, we do it based on stereotype. We don't do it based on individuals. We judge stereotypes. We judge it emphatically, very quickly with the limbic system of the brain based on a quick risk assessment of the type of person that person is. And the danger that exists is that we don't often understand our own stereotypes. We don't know we have them. You know, uh, we all have biases and stereotypes and we have two different types. I often talk about experiential and learned stereotypes. We all have experiential stereotypes. They're usually really, really accurate. They are stereotypes that we have built up based on experiences that we have had. And they're usually really, really accurate because we've lived it. We know it to be true. You know, and then the other ones are learned stereotypes. They're ones that we think we know, but we've never actually tried, tested or lived. And the danger with those is that we're relying on somebody else's experiences to tell us. And what works for them may not necessarily work for us. The famous um, uh, motivational speaker, Jim Rowan. Has anyone ever come across Jim Rowan from the, from the early 70s? I believe he was out. Um, he was like uh, Tony Robbins' mentor. And so he, he used to do this exercise where you get people in a room and say, okay, guys, stand up if you're afraid of rats. And two thirds of the room would stand up. So, okay, of those of you who are standing up, sit back down again if you've never seen a rat. Or if you've ever, if you've ever seen a rat, I apologize. And about half of them would sit back down again. So now you're left toward the room standing up who are afraid of rats but had never seen one. You know? And that's perception in action. Like, you know? They believe what they think they know and they form opinions based on that. And that's what we all do when we don't know. You know, when we don't know any any different from people. And that's where we judge our stereotypes from. So it's important to recognize that we all have stereotypes. And that's that bounded rationality again. You know, we're making assumptions in bounded rationality based on our stereotypes and our biases and our own inherent beliefs about what's right and wrong. And, and that comes across in our attitude. And I suppose as professionals, I suppose, we have to be aware of that, that that comes across and how that impacts on what we call the Pataris box or the attitude behavior cycle. And the attitude behavior cycle will tell us that your attitudes, your beliefs, your stereotypes and your biases will impact upon your behavior. And your, your behavior will impact upon the other person's attitude. How you treat them, how you behave will impact on how they think of you, which in turn will affect their behavior and it turns into a vicious cycle. Now, by far the easiest one to change is behavior because behavior is an individual choice. We can choose to change our behavior at any given point. We can choose to treat a person nicely, even though we don't necessarily like the person. And that's manipulation again. And that affects the attitude over a long period of time, but it will never solve it completely. So I suppose one of the things we do quite quickly uh, when we engage in this, when we're reading body language, is one of the concepts I often put across is this concept of situation awareness and action. You know, and how we quickly read situations, you know. So we often talk that we, when we're scanning, when our limbic system is scanning and our amygdala is looking around for signals, we often rely on prior knowledge and internal risk assessments. And that basis, our situation awareness then, when it perceives a risk, goes, okay, well, how dangerous is it? And have I done it before? You know, in this context, how dangerous is it? And have I done it before? based on the task itself, the individuals involved and the environment I find myself in. And then it goes up to the logical brain that goes, well, you've done it before. What has worked before in terms of, did you need support? How did you, what was your exit strategy? What was your own level of ability and stuff? And it becomes a planned response. 
But all of this only works if we go right back to the very force that we did here, if we are cognizant of interpersonal conflict, that oftentimes when we're doing this scanning section of situation awareness, it's influenced by the last situation we've been involved in. And if we're still clouded with adrenaline and cortisol, that is certainly going to influence us. So I suppose some of the tools and strategies that we have, uh, and I want to move through this quite quickly because I'm aware we're running out of time. Um, obviously getting a forced name we talked about earlier on, uh, getting a forced name, using it early and often. And then one of the other concepts we often talk about is controlling the burn. You know, so controlling that burning off of, of adrenaline, I think, is a very appropriate one. And one of the most powerful tools that I've used over the years, and I think it's a fantastic when I worked in hotel security, I used to use this on a regular basis, uh, is a pen and paper. I think a pen and paper is one of the most powerful tools that you can have for managing conflict on a number of levels. So as soon as that notebook comes out or pen and paper comes out and into your hand, I think it does a number of things. One, it shows that we're listening to that other human being as a concept, you know, that we're, we're engaged and we're building trust. The second thing, it absolutely engages our rational brain. Writing is one of the most powerful tools that we have, one of the most rational tools we have. There's no other creature in the planet that can do it. So it requires a lot of engaged rational thinking. So when we take out that pen and paper, it helps keep us Shows empathy, allows us to show empathy. So we're writing what they're saying. We're taking notes. We're listening. Yeah, I got that. Yeah. It allows us to control the bone. So we can control the bone of the conversation. Because under stress, when we have adrenaline and cortisol, we tend to talk quicker and louder. When we're writing, it allows us to paste them back again. So we can say, okay, just hang on a second there. I just want to make sure I'm getting what, I'm, what you're saying here. And we can control the bone of the conversation. And then when we get to the end, we can completely let that bone out because what we can do at the end is say, okay, now what I've got written down here is point one, point two, point three, and point four. So I just want to clarify, did I understand you correctly there? And they now have to go back now when I give them those point one, point two, point three, and point four, and ask them, did I understand that correctly? They have to engage the part of the brain that deals with understanding. And they have to repeat back on, did I mean to say that? Is that what I meant to say? Is that uh, something that works for me? Whatever the case may be. Gives us a written record of the events. You know? And they go, um, yeah, perfect venting. You know, we let them burn off that bit at the end. And at the end, they can go, no, actually, what I meant to say was, and they can finish off that burn. So only when we've allowed the venting to go, when they've burned off that adrenaline and cortisol, is their brain now in a position to start listening to solutions. At the beginning, when they had all that adrenaline to burn off, they had to burn it off so their brain could actually have the capacity to deal with the solution. Once they vent, their brain is in a position to accept solutions now. And this is where uh, a model that I've liked uh, for a while, I suppose, comes in. The, um, the model is called Leo. It's not my own or anything. It's been used for decades, as far as I can find out. Uh, Leo is a listen, empathize options. So we've listened, we've wrote down, we showed empathy, yeah, I know what you're saying there, I understand, yeah. And then we're gonna deliver options. And one of the most powerful sayings I've ever come across in conflict management, I think it actually comes from Sigmund Freud uh, originally, or it's attributed to Sigmund Freud originally. He said that um, even when all options are bad, options are good. You know, the ability to offer options is often a very, very good thing. Even when all options are bad, options are good. So we've listened, we've empathized. Okay, so this is what your problem is. Okay, so what I can offer to you now is option one, two, and three. And none of those might be what they want, but I don't even mention what they can't have. 
I don't even mention, they come in here saying, I want to do this and I want to do that. I listen to them, I take the notes, I understand the problem and they go, okay, what's available is one, two, three. I don't bother what they can't have and tell them what they is available. Do any of those solutions work for us? And again, us. Can we adapt any of those solutions to make them work for us? Have a think about, is there any of those that would make you at least remotely happy? And they might still say no. They might say, well, actually, this one, yeah, might work for me. You know, and we've offered them an option. Well, there's a solution. We've offered you a solution. You know, and even if none of them, even if it's not a good solution, I've handed them back the control by giving them options and going option one, two, and three, which do you pick? You know, we give them the illusion of control. They feel like they're solving the problem. They feel like they're in charge. I pick option three. Who picked it? I did. I told that security person, this is what I was going to do. You know, so they have that illusion of control. We give them back a, a slight little bit of like I call it the illusion of control. We've actually shown them exactly what we want to pick by giving them what we call the option sandwich. You know, uh, I, I generally don't like to give too many options. I generally stick to um, an even number of options, you know, two or four, if I can, you know, and I'll always start with a good option give them a bad option and then reinforce the good again. You know, classic example I usually give when I'm giving trains, asking somebody to leave a bar. Look, you can step outside, just step, you can step outside, we can have a talk about this like gentlemen. Or you can refuse, in which case my colleagues and I are gonna to have to remove it. I really wouldn't like that to happen. Can we step outside and talk like gents? You know, and when he goes, right, come on, and steps outside, he feels like he's chosen to go outside with you. You know, because we've given him a good option, given him a bad option and emphasised. He might still pick the bad. No, I'm not going. You know, in which case then we go to, we've done listen, we've done our notes, we've done our outcomes and we have a valid record of what's after happening. Um, it might be a difficult conversation about a complaint or whatever the, the case might be. And then, uh, yeah, allowing, allowing them the right to be wrong. Yeah, giving a person, like we said, go back to Miller's tree. You know, giving a person an easy way to lose, a way to lose that they don't lose, out, uh, lose face, you know, a way to lose that's acceptable to them, that they can go home and tell their mates and their friends and their family, I picked this, you know, and, and they can be, at least have a little bit of, of uh, satisfaction when they go outside. <laughs> Stephen's response is kill CCTV and go nuclear. Yeah? <laughs> Ah, yes. The old ninja death touch, Stephen. Solution to every problem. <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, then it comes to, you know, they might still choose the bad option. Then it's outcomes. Look, that's all I was able to offer you. I've offered you a number of options. I'm still hoping, still hoping you're going to take them. You know? But if you don't, this is what's unfortunately going to happen. You know? And we've given them all the notice in the world. But when, it's come, when it comes back to it, and the complaint comes in the next day, or the issue comes in the next day about conflict, you know, and I'm going on to reasonable force now a little bit, you know, but I always say when it comes to reasonable force that um, um, reasonable force is a concept and people don't get in trouble for what they do, they get in trouble for how they explain what they did, you know, it comes back to, well, look, these are the options that I gave to this customer, this is the options that I came, and I'm not talking about a bar situation because you're not going to be out writing notes, but, you know, I'm talking about in a, in a customer thing, hang on, you're not knowing I'm going to take out my notebook, you know, it's, it's having a tool in the toolbox for your customer complaints or whatever the case might be uh, when you're dealing with them. 
Um, so in terms of when we give people those outcomes, okay, look, this is not a problem I can solve for you today. This is not a problem I'm going to solve today in the way that we wanted to solve it. We now have to go, like we said, to, to other options or whatever the case might be. But at least you've given them all the options in the world. And even when it goes nuclear, as Stephen liked to put it, and we have to use physical skills, whether that's, it doesn't matter what the environment is, we're still always giving them the options. Even when we're using physical skills, we're going to, do you want to leave? Or do you want to come in? Whatever the case might be. You know, we're still giving them those options. Yeah, I do. Okay, well, let's do that then. You know, we can always go back uh, to those ones. So in terms then, I often talk about um, some of the other strategies that can be effective, but that can also have, um, I suppose, negatives to them as well. That false control we talked about there, there is some negatives to that as well in that, you know, if a person feels like they're too much in control, they can think they're actually in control. Posturing, we said earlier on, uh, posturing has its pros and cons in that some people can see posturing as um, being, I suppose, intimidatory if it's done incorrectly. One of the ones that I, that I often like to use, and again, it operates on the limbic system as well, I like to call the time traveler, uh, using the time traveler technique, taking a person into the future and then bringing them back to it again. Because when it comes to consequence under stress, people don't see long-term consequence. You know, All they see is the immediate consequence. They don't see the long-term consequence of their actions. So sometimes we have to take the person in, take them on a bit of a time travel into the future and back again to help them make a decision. You know, so a person shouting, roaring and screaming. And we did a little bit there a minute ago. The good example, I was training with some retail security people recently. We are talking about uh, arrests, you know, how do we get them to come back inside the shop? You know, for us, you know, those options out on the street. Listen, we can walk back inside the shop now. The alternative to that is the guards is going to arrive here. All these people are going to be looking at you. You're going to be putting handcuffs and putting the back of a guard car in front of all those people. Cameras, phones, Everything's going to be out. I really don't want you to be embarrassed by that. Much easier if we take it inside. But I have, it's no good saying to them, I have to make them feel the feeling they're going to feel when somebody's videoing them being put in the back of a Gaga car or a squad car in handcuffs. You have to work on the emotion, they're in the emotional state of minds. You have to elicit the feeling. You have to talk about the embarrassment. It's going to be mortifying. You know, same with the physical skills one. You know, Look, we'd like to walk out. Unfortunately, if you don't walk out, and you're saying this in quite a nice way, unfortunately, if you don't walk out, myself and my colleagues are going to have to take hold of you. We're going to have to restrain you, bring you through all these people, take you outside, and possibly have you arrested. And that's your name in the newspaper, and all your family and friends are going to see that. I'd much rather we walked out the door, though. But you have to make them feel the feeling, the embarrassment, on the bad option. Otherwise, they... They don't get it. If you talk to them on a logical level when they're in an emotional state of mind, they don't get it. You know? And when the person, even if it's an office situation and they come in here shouting, roaring, screaming into the office situation, you know, it's often a case of, well, uh, how do we manage that? Well, listen, if you continue like this, it's not going to be. <laughs> uh, the old fashioned, I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to keep it. One of the people, uh, for people listening on the podcast, the most helpful that Stephen can be here is, have you ever picked up your teeth with broken fingers? <laughs> <laughs> hammer nail again Stephen <laughs> I like that one uh, <clears throat> it's about as original as it gets but then when we when we take them out of that we have to take them back to that good option again look let's just walk you know and then once that once that situation is solved sorry Stephen we won't say your second name it could be any Stephen <laughs> so 
once that situation is solved, then we have to look at, well, how do we manage the stress of that? And I'm going to wrap this up in five minutes and put it open for, for you guys to come in a little bit if you want. Um, so I suppose it's in, in recognizing some of the stuff that will lead to what we call stress and fragility after conflict. So sometimes your style of management will lead into it. I think this is a hugely overlooked one in the industry. Fatigue is a hugely overlooked one in the industry, I think. You know, as, as humans, I suppose, as security professionals, we are paid to be professionals, which means that we are paid to operate the exact same at nine o'clock in the Monday morning as we do at 11 o'clock on Friday night. We're paid to operate at the exact same level, you know, in terms of emotions, in terms of how we manage ourselves and stuff like that. As humans, we are not the same human at nine o'clock Monday morning as we are at 11 o'clock Friday night. You know, you're getting paid the same salary at the same rate, at the same level of person, but you're not the same human. You know, we have fatigue, we have tiredness, we have personal ability, we have metabolic system and stuff like that. You know, and all that impacts us. And I suppose we're never going to change that. It's about recognizing and putting in place the things that we need to do to manage that uh, a little bit. Because if we don't manage that, uh, we will eventually suffer the effects of it. And somebody, in my experience, stress and fragility usually manifests itself in one or two ways. We either bore out or we lash out. And I've seen far too many good people in the course of my career lose jobs and livelihoods because of both of us. They bore out and they get physically sick of the job. And we mentioned earlier on, they either bore out and they end up going to work in Starbucks. No, no disrespect to Starbucks or McDonald's or something like that. Save them behind the counter because it's less stress. You know, in my experience at the security profession, most people don't leave the security profession because of a one-off high-risk high incidents of violence. They leave the security profession because of a buildup of low-risk, high-consistency violence. Constantly being shouted at, constantly subjected to long shifts while being shouted at. You know, and I think, yeah, certainly people will say the, the company, yeah, uh, somebody made a very good point, shifting mindsets, you know, going from retail by day to doors at night. It's not just a long shift. It's an absolute shift in mindset. We saw that at the start of this COVID pandemic, door staff getting involved in retail security. You know, if you've done 10 years of door work and you shift all of a sudden, you're standing inside the door of Aldi staring at Elwins buying cornflakes. You know? <laughs> yeah, not today, love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Managing the queue at Aldi. ID people walking into the alcohol aisle in Aldi. <laughs> so <clears throat> before they even get there. So it is it, that shift in mindset is fatiguing. It's tiring. It's exhausting. You know, so we have to manage ourselves and that brings me on to the last point I often make about stress and fragility, which is lifestyle choices. I think personally, and I've been as guilty of anyone as this over the years, is, you know, our lifestyle choices impact on our stress and conflict levels. How physically, emotionally, and mentally fit we choose to keep ourselves. You know, and I go back to what I said earlier on. If you do not choose to look after yourself, you have no business putting yourself in a position to look after other people. You know, and I'm not talking about everybody being super fit. I'm talking about you having a level of physical, mental, and emotional fitness that allows you to operate in your job at the level of risk that you walk in. You know, um, I think that's hugely important and it does deal with, uh, and that, I think that helps build resilience, you know, that exposure to cortisol and exposure to adrenaline that we do, um, or that, that lack of sleep. So conditioning ourselves, not just conditioning to it, I suppose, but taking advantage of it when we can and you know 
suppose sometimes a bit of self-awareness and recognizing that look i need a break before i burn out or lash out you know and it goes back to that collaborative approach again being self-aware enough to know when you need help and that help might not come in one single situation of high risk aggression or violence it might simply be you've just had a long week of low level high consistency violence and i'm talking about violence here in the in the purest term i got this from um, dr richard disson uh, on a podcast uh, he told him, uh, I think it was on Joe Saunders' podcast, he mentioned about one of the, the old philosophers, and I've read the paper since a guy called Gulang, and he said that the definition of violence is anyone where you're restrained from your full potential. Restraining anyone from their full potential is an act of violence. You know? And I think sometimes we do violence upon ourselves a little bit because we go to work restraining ourselves from our full potential because we haven't looked after ourselves for the previous week, month, or whatever the case might be. I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about emotionally and, and mentally. You know? And that's what often results in more conflict for us. How we actually look after ourselves mentally will dictate intrapersonal again, go back to the very start, how we do it out there. So I suppose some of the stuff we can do to wrap it up, I suppose, uh, in terms of resilience practice, I was on physical fitness, we said, uh, stress inoculation. I often talk about with people, you know, building up low levels of stress. Um, I walked up until the pandemic starts with a lot of nightclubs and bars around the country building plans like that, building scenario-based training for them that they could ramp up over time. Because me going in and doing a seminar with a nightclub or a bar once a year for a day teaches them very little in terms of how they're going to perform six months later when something kicks off. You know, what, what does it teach them? You know, it teaches them a set of underpinning knowledge and skills, but unless they start applying that in gradually rising stress, uh, I think uh, without mentioning Terry's second name, uh, you had this concept of micro training down to a T, you know, in the, in the thing that you're trying to do. I haven't seen it in action, obviously, but, you know, it's a hugely important thing, that thing of micro training, getting down to the micro level and seeing little bits of your concepts and how they work and building them together into a system that works for you, you know, and I think that's often overlooked in places, you know, looking at those what if situations and applying, applying them then in higher and higher levels of stress, you know, until you can do it at a proficient level, not just at a, at a capable level, um, at a capability level. Uh, personal debrief, I think, is a huge one, especially for lone walkers, guys that are left on their own in fast food joints, bars, and stuff like that. You know, the ability to not have to rely on others to debrief you in a situation. Because as we all know, on a Saturday night at 4 a.m. in the morning, nobody's coming to answer the phone to help you. You know, when you're feeling, you know, worn out and drained, after a hard day or a hard night, you know, I hear lying awake at night, worrying about stuff that's happened that day. Am I going to get in trouble? I think one of the biggest worries for people in the security industry I often think is not the personal worry or fear of danger. It's the fear of losing a livelihood, I think is a huge fear. And that's certainly something that's kept me awake at night over the years when I've been involved in, a, in situations over the years, thinking if, if, if a complaint comes in, bills, mortgage, rent, much more so than I'd gladly put myself in a situation, sometimes I would say bravely, sometimes stupidly, where my safety is at risk. Because I know I've got a skill set that's going to match that. But a situation that's out of my control, my manager holds my ability to retain my home and pay my bills in their hands based on the decision that they'll make. You know? So I think the ability to do a personal debrief on it, I think is a huge thing. What did I do well? What did I do badly? What did I do differently next time? Those three questions, I think, are huge. 
at the end of an instant or the end of a night. Uh, where I was head dormant in a lot of places and some very, very big nightclubs, I would sit down with people at the end of the night and I would have that with them when they're writing their instant reports. You know, before they do their instant report, long before they do their instant reports, have a think about this. Don't tell me, don't tell anyone next to you. What you do well, what you do badly, what you learn from. Have a think about it for 30 seconds. Then write your insert report. Because what does that do? That engages from the emotional brain where you're going, that was crap. That was a crap night. Those three questions engage the rational brain. And all of a sudden now, when you're writing your statement, rational brain is engaged. You know, I think they're a huge thing to be able to sit down at the end of a night, even in your car before you go home to your family, before you take it out when people are home because you're full of stress. What to do well, what to do badly, what did I learn? What will I do differently? You know? Those questions, I think, are a huge thing. And then the last one, I'm not going to spend all that time on, it's mindfulness. I think in the security industry, um, I'll come to your question, the second part I got there. Um, <clears throat> in the security industry, I think mindfulness is one of those subjects that's really taboo still, and it's something that I think everyone should look up if anyone wants some information on that. I actually teach now uh, with, with ICSA a program on mindfulness and resilience for frontline workers. You know? teaching them how to manage the stress of the job that they're in. Because oftentimes you talk about, yes, de-escalation and, and avoidance and stuff like that. But there is um, certainly a team out there that conflict is certainly unavoidable in certain circumstances and you just have to be resilient to it. I think mindfulness is something that certainly helps. Uh, it's certainly something that helped me over the years. It's a, I've been involved in martial arts since a, a very young age. And certainly things like, uh, you know, the, the esoteric martial arts, the Buddha, the mindfulness that goes with that, is something that certainly benefited me over the years. For people starting off, I, I usually recommend an app called Headspace. It's, it's been a massive benefit to loads of frontline professionals uh, that I've worked with over the, over the years. It's nothing to do with sitting in the corner in your pajamas on a cushion. Um, <clears throat> you can do it in 30 seconds or 30 minutes. You know, and I think, yeah, it, it certainly allows you to detach yourself. That's the one thing that I got from Keith. It certainly allows you to detach yourself in situations that you'd otherwise be emotionally involved with. And somebody up forward has said, certainly when you're talking to the guards, and I think that, that hugely benefited me over the years in how I explained my situations to the authorities and to managers afterwards. I was able to detach myself. And that was a huge, huge advantage to me and a huge advantage to them. You know, uh, because I was able to give a detached lack of emotion account of my actions even in a very stressful situation so that's me wrapping up for tonight we got five minutes left i kind of overrun i was hoping for 10 minutes uh thoughts questions actions criticisms i'm, I'm not sensitive uh please feel free to throw them in pat i see the question there. i'm going to get to it in a second anybody got in any situation or incident they want to throw in or anything like that questions queries silence i like silence <laughs> that either means it was really good or really bad <laughs> everyone stayed which is always positive <laughs> uh, thanks Ken um, <clears throat> so look I would say it's a lot of people refusing to wear masks in public places yeah certainly yeah um, <clears throat> it certainly is and again that's just a value judgment somebody had a, a question there on masks and how we encourage people to wear masks and, and things like that I think sometimes we have to go with that behaviour change thing you know, that there's a certain minority who you're not going to change their behavior. And all we can do with that minority is deterrence value. If that makes sense. You know, this is the rule and you're going to abide by that, by that rule. Anybody else got anything they want to throw in before I wrap it up? Happy? Did everyone get something? I'm kind of hoping that everybody got something from it. Uh, even if, or everyone at least laughed at some of Stephen's comments, if nothing else. Um, <clears throat> 
<laughs> and other people. Uh, <clears throat> so, look, I'll go back to the very start again, just to say uh, thanks very much for taking two hours every evening to come here. Uh, I have slides and stuff like that to send on that I'm going to send on to people and the recording I'll send on to people along with the CPD search. But if anybody has stuff on, on other stuff that I mentioned, I didn't get into that just once, just drop me an email and I'm happy enough to, to send it on. Two hours was 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 tight to get stuff done. Thanks, Caroline. Uh, was very very tight to get stuff done in. So I'm kind of hoping that uh, everybody got something. If anybody ever wants to do a more expanded one, feel free to just drop me a mail. I'm happy to do a more expanded one with people uh, for anyone that wants to do it, or wants to do a, a court, if you have a group of people that would like to do it, I'm, I'm happy to do it for, for people again. Um, <clears throat> so thanks very much for your time. Like I said, and if anybody wants to ask anything before we go, yeah, thank you, uh, Lenny. It certainly was a great audience. Uh, feel free to feel free to do that uh, if you can. But thanks very much, guys. Trying, I'm just trying to keep up with the with the questions and stuff. Tony. Yes. I just throw one at you there while you're there. Who's talking to me? Oh yeah, gotcha. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Just in terms of your feedback and your overall views of where we stand at the moment with the um, QQI level four training, and in particular, the content and the capabilities of, of trainers in delivering uh, conflict resolutions and conflict management within that overall um, matrix as it stands. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think it's, it's a huge problem in that one, many entry-level program, conflict management is only ever going to end up being one learning outcome of probably 25th. So any training provider looking to maximize for profits is going to spend probably one twenty-fifth of the time talking about conflicts. Mm -hmm. you know? And I suppose a lot of it will come from that person's perception of, of conflict. I think it's going to be very challenging in that you're going to have awarding bodies or, or TP1 providers who are going to sign up and they're going to approve all their trainers to do it. But they're going to make an assumption that all the trainers can provide at the same level, which is grossly not true. You know, we all know in the industry here that you know certain trainers will not be capable of dipping to that level, and other trainers are all from different backgrounds. We have examples of people in this country uh, from alarm installation backgrounds delivering physical intervention courses that they're, they're del delivering from a, a PowerPoint slide. Um, I'm kind of glad George is not here now because he'd go off and we'll now all together we'll be listening to him for the night. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, <clears throat> I'm not referring to him, by the way, but he'd certainly go off. And, but um, it, it is the case. It's the same in the UK. I had the same argument with a person in the UK last week. The, I personally don't think that outside of probably eight to 10 trainers that I know of in the country, and this is no disrespect, some of whom are on this call, there's probably eight to 10 people in the country who have... Uh, underpinning knowledge, capacity, and um, experience, I suppose, to, to deliver uh, to the level that it should be. The alternative to that is that you're going to get it delivered to a lower standard, and anyone who wants to go and do it as an upskilling is going to have to go and do it as, a, as an upskilling, but that's what's going to happen, I think, personally. And I think when this, the new standard comes in, it's going to be a diluted standard when it comes to conflict management. I really think conflict management shouldn't be a part of the, the entry-level program. It should be a standalone on its own that you have to do in addition to it, uh, because it is going to get diluted down to 125th of an entry-level program. You're going to get very basic skills. I don't know, would you agree with it, Terry? I know we've got a couple of trainers on here, Sean, I don't know if you'd have an opinion on that, but um, <clears throat> uh, Stephen as well. 
Uh, but I think it's going to be a very, very diluted uh, model if it comes in in the way that it's going to come in. Um, especially if they put in a PI model into it as part of a learning outcome, it's going to get grossly diluted because the awarding body will not stand over any sort of physical intervention that they know nothing about. No. Whoever the awarding body is, whether it ends up in PSA or QPI, they, they will not stand over it. They don't know enough about PI to stand over, which is why I think it should be a standalone externally accredited module. That's just my opinion, though. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> would you agree, Terry, or would you disagree? Or yeah, no, I fully, I fully agree. I think it's it, it's not only physical intervention or conflict management. You've got first aid thrown in there, manual handling, and you're and you're asking individuals to deliver on these, and they're not suitably qualified. So whether it's their fault, the industry's fault. As a whole, the, the, Q, the QQI level four is entry level, but um, it does need a bit of remodeling. Yeah. I think the whole system, it's, it's a separate conversation for a separate program, I suppose. I think the, the, the whole system needs a remodel in terms of, I think it, it should get away from entry level and you're done and much more towards a tiered approach to practitioner mm -hmm. level, you know, getting, getting somebody to a, an advanced level, but not being able to come in and do a, a full program to be an advanced practitioner. Similar to medical, Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong here, that you can't actually move on to the next level until you get life experience in one level, you know, actual practical work experience, you know? Yeah, well, the new theory now is, uh, is top down. In other words, they're looking for EMTs to train EFRs, EFRs to train FARs, rather than have that kind. Of, I, I'm going to just say something straight here. If people in the industry there that are coming out of corporate world decided to do a first aid instructors course with never, never even seen a scratch or a bleed in their life, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah so what like what are they teaching they're just teaching there's a big difference between uh common sense book sense you know what i mean street smart and book smart yeah yeah i think you're, you're absolutely right yeah and the, the security industry is the same um people from all sorts of backgrounds and stuff like that as you know and it's just because somebody's teaching in the industry doesn't mean they've actually ever worked operationally in the industry but yeah i think i think you have a valid point there i think it's going to get very much diluted unless we change approach to it all together the problem with a one-off qualification is once they're qualified, you're qualified. You know? Yeah, know. And there's nothing there after that. There's no, C there's no CPD, no? Nothing, no. And and even if you were doing CPD, it wouldn't take you up a tier, if you know what I mean, you know? So you get the same rate regardless of whether you've done 20 courses or, or one course. You know, it's, it's a struggle, you know? Yeah. Uh, encourage without having a tiered rate, I suppose, you know? Well, I think Tony was was not was not talk before of a of a second license. I know from talking to the PSA last year before COVID, there was talk of a supervisor license. Whether that's been put in the back burner now or not, I don't know. I I, I would I would think so in lieu of I suppose a, a couple of things. If you bring in a second license with a higher level qualification, that has to attract a higher level rate of pay, and there's going to be huge pressure on companies to to increase wage, which they can't do, and then who is going to dictate at what point you need a supervisor on a site? You know, is the client going to pay additionally if you have three people, five people, 10 people, you know, where are you going to dictate? Because what you'll end up doing if you have to pay a supervisor a higher rate is that you'll have companies who just won't have supervisors. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, but I think, yeah, it'll be, it'll be back burner. But I think it can be a lot more transparent where at the moment, like, I'm asked for supervisors um, on site um, and as it stands at the moment, clients are taking you at face value. But if you have somebody that has a standard issue and a CPD requirement on a yearly basis and, yeah. and they're paying for it, it's, quite, it's transparent that the license stipulates it's a supervisor license so they get what they pay for. 
yeah. as it stands at the moment, supervisors are on site. Whether they're suitably qualified or not is, is questionable, but I think with a licensing structure and again on a 12-month cycle, there is a bit more transparency there. Whether it works or not, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you have a valid point on that. Yeah, um, it, it would have to be some kind of a distinction from the from the actual license, I would think. You know, um, and, and some kind of reward system that would provide an impetus for somebody to go for it. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, I suppose traditionally, what well, what I would see around the place is somebody is a supervisor simply because they're the longest serving member of staff on site. Yeah, that doesn't often make them the the best person for a supervisor similarly to the door industry i suppose the head doorman is the after the head doorman leaves the next person who's there the longest automatically becomes the, the head doorman it doesn't necessarily mean they're a head doorman you know yeah. even, for guys, even for guys coming into the industry if guys there are 5 10 15 20 years and a lot of them are on the same rate mm-hmm. uh, as guys that start tomorrow um that's not right it's not fair and um, you know so if there is a tiered system where somebody straight away advances to a next level whether it's a euro or 150 or two whatever it is there has to be some kind of engagement with employees to give them the opportunity to step up. Uh, yeah. To the yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're right. Like at the moment for those guys, they're getting out of the industry after 10 or 15 years because there's nowhere to progress to. No. You know, where, where do you go? You know, uh, a lot of the senior management roles have been filled from a, a business strategic point of view with salespeople. So even to go up operationally, you're going to operations supervisor and then no higher, you know, to go to management level, they're nearly bringing in people, at a business level with sales backgrounds and, and things like that, you know, so, uh, you know, a lot of good guys, I suppose the industry's bleeding. And then I suppose they're seeing people being taken in directly who are coming out of military and police. And so, and nothing wrong with that. Don't, don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with that coming directly in at management level, whereas they're still at the same level after 10 or 15 years. And you, you know, you'd have to say, well, there's fault on both sides there, you know, in terms of, well, the individual who's doing nothing to show themselves out for 10 or 15 years, and also, you know, obviously the organization who will bring somebody in at that level as well, I think, you know. Yeah, but I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of experience versus academia. You yeah. know, some, some businesses are looking at educational backgrounds before they look specifically at experience. Mm-hmm. Someone to have 10, 15, 20 years of experience, maybe it warrants the opportunity as much as the oh, academia. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so, yeah. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. So, guys, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Good. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Thanks very much for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Bye, lads. Bye, bye. Bye, lads. Thanks, Tony. Talk to you later. Thanks, Tony. Bye. It it was very good.